Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be together this, this uh, wonderful Lord's Day in which we set aside time to worship you, uh, worship you through the singing of songs, worship you through the teaching of your word, worship you through the service of our teachers throughout this building and of our junior and senior high teachers as well. Lord, thank you so much for uh, all that you do. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word, which guides and directs our lives. And thank you for the salvation that we do not deserve and could not earn, but that you offer freely to us by putting our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on Calvary. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in our good works, not faith in a church or a religion, but faith in Jesus. There's even one here who has yet to put their trust in him. I pray they would do it this day. Now, Lord, guide us in our study, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a practice, Kathy and I do, uh, when we drive to church on Sunday morning. <clears throat> she prays for the services. She prays for all of you who will be here for the services. She prays for our teachers in the greenhouse. Uh, she prays for my message. And uh, <laughs> this morning, she really brought me up short when she was praying for me and praying for the message because she said this, Lord, help Joe to tell us what all the hubbub is about at the Antioch church. <laughs> and I love that because I thought, well, that's the theme of our message. What's all the hubbub? about at the Antioch church and the answer is this the hubbub is about the gospel moves out to the ends of the earth that's the hubbub that's going on at the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 finally we reach that third stage the gospel has already reached Jerusalem it has already reached Judea and Samaria and now from Acts 13 through the end of the book of Acts it reaches out to the ends of the earth. But the thing I want you to understand and the thing I want you to remember above all is the gospel moves out to the ends of the earth under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Wasn't the church's idea, wasn't some magnificent plan they came, they came up with, but rather the gospel moves to the ends of the earth under the direction of the Holy Spirit. J. Vernon McGee gets the sense of what's happening from Acts 13 through the end of the book when he writes this. Now the gospel moves out officially on its way to the ends of the earth. On its way to the ends of the earth, the gospel came to my ancestors and to your ancestors. Today, you and I are the beneficiaries of the fact that someone went down the road of this world to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the story of Acts 13 through 28. Somebody went out, went down the road to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And McGee says this, challenging you and challenging me, you and I ought to be in the business of taking the gospel down beyond where we are to someone who has not heard. Gospel came to us because Paul and Barnabas followed.
followed the leading of God the Holy Spirit. The church at Antioch followed the leading of God the Holy Spirit, and they went out and took the gospel to Europe and took the gospel to Asia Minor, and from there it eventually reaches us. And that's the story that we're studying this morning. Now, there's, there's several questions that arise, and, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping we can do justice to all of them this morning. Uh, there are several questions that arise out of this passage. It's only three verses, but several questions occur to me, at least, as we go through this passage. These are four questions that I'd like to try to answer this morning. Number one, what is the basis for going and taking the gospel beyond our own area? What's the basis for taking the gospel? What's the basis for missions? What's the basis for church planting? I think we see it clearly in this passage, the answer to that. Number two, what are the characteristics of the kind of person God uses? What are the characteristics of the kind of person God uses? And not only uses locally, but then calls to the uttermost parts of the world. What is the characteristics of that person? Number three, what are the characteristics of a sending church? What are the characteristics of a sending church? What kind of church sends those into the world to preach the gospel? What are the characteristics of ascending church? And then finally, the question I want to start with, with this morning is the fourth question we want to answer. Is it right to evangelize in a pluralistic world? Is it right to evangelize in a pluralistic world? Another way to say this, is it right to say that Jesus is the only way to God? Is it right to say that Jesus is the only way to God? Now, I want to answer that question and uh, uh, help us to understand that we do live in a pluralistic world. We do live in a world with many religions that claim to be the way to God. Christianity, however, makes a claim none of the rest do, or most of the rest do not, and that is that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And when we take the message beyond these walls, to whether it's to Del Rio or to Texas or to the U.S. or to the uttermost parts of the world, we are taking the message that there is only one way to God, there is only one way to heaven, and that way is through Jesus Christ. Is it right to do that? There was a missions writer by the name of Jim Reapson that I used to read years ago, and he was really prescient in his writing. Uh, he, he really had the ability to look ahead and, and see the trends that were coming. And way back in the early 1990s, he wrote, uh, I know some of you weren't born yet, but... <laughs> Uh, way back then, he wrote this, Classic Christian doctrine will continue to be de-emphasized in America's churches, leading to further erosion of belief in the lostness of people outside of Christ. Not much commitment to evangelism and church planting at home, and even less to the evangelization of the world. He saw properly that a time would be coming when even believers would not believe in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. When even believers would not believe in the uniqueness of Christianity. He looked forward 
and saw that time. So let's answer the question, is it right to evangelize in a pluralistic world? Alistair McGrath, in his excellent commentary uh, on the Bible, the whole Bible, but particularly on Acts, <coughs> says this, in today's pluralistic postmodern world, it is widely believed that there is no overarching explanation of anything, no truth that is true for everyone, and that all paths are acceptable as long as they don't hurt someone else. To claim there is one religious reality universally true for everyone is therefore seen as bigoted and oppressive. So can Christians evangelize in such a culture claiming Christ as the only way to God? His answer is short and sweet. He says, first of all, we should remember that our world is not greatly different from the world of New Testament times. In other words, the world in which Paul and Barnabas took the gospel to the uttermost parts was a pluralistic world with many religions, many gods, not unlike our time. Not unlike our time. So the early church believed they could take this message of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, that they could take this message that Jesus Christ alone is God incarnate, that Jesus Christ alone can atone for sins, that Jesus Christ alone is the way to heaven. They could take that message because they're going into the same kind of world, or maybe I should say it the other way around, we're going into the same kind of world they did. A pluralistic world with many religions many claims to be ways to God. And they weren't afraid to take this message into the world of their day. They weren't afraid to take this message of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ into the pluralistic world of their day. Secondly, he says this, yet Christians refuse to compromise. They believed compromise was not possible, for Jesus had said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Other religions were simply not a valid option, therefore. While Christians today will therefore treat followers of other religions with kindness and respect, and by the way, that's always necessary, to treat those who believe differently from us with kindness and respect, he says it seems impossible to be faithful to Jesus' claims and commission and accept other religions as equally valid paths to God. Christians have no choice but to share the truth as they have found it in Jesus. I think that's a perfectly good statement. You and I have no choice. No matter how pluralistic our society, no matter how postmodern our society, we have no choice but to share the truth as we have found it in Jesus. And let me boil it down to this. If there is another way to God other than Jesus Christ, then the Bible is in error and Jesus is lying. If there is a way to God other than through Jesus Christ, then the Bible is in error and Jesus is lying. Let me share real quickly 
a couple of scripture for you. You see, if Jesus is the person the Bible claims him to be, he is uniquely God because he is God incarnate, God in human flesh, and he is therefore uniquely the Savior. He is the one that can bridge the gap between us and God the Father. He is the mediator between us and God the Father. Let me give you a couple of scripture, and you can chew on these later this week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And uh, if you want to turn to that, you can. I'll just quickly read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Paul clearly is saying is Jesus is God who came from heaven to earth, taking upon himself human flesh, coming here not only as a human being, but coming as a servant with humility of heart. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, therefore tells us that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and is not free to claim, not, not fearful to claim that he is equal to God the Father. So God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 19. And I wish we had time to read all these, but we really don't. But Colossians 1, verses 15 to 19 tells us that Christ is the image of the God we cannot see. When we read the characteristics of Jesus Christ, when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, we are seeing God, the invisible God, the God who is spirit, the God who we cannot see is seen in Jesus Christ. The God whom we cannot see is seen in Jesus Christ, Colossians tells us. Christ created all things. All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form in Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He is fully God. Therefore, He's uniquely the Savior. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, another passage that you might want to study, where John tells us that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus claims to be one with God the Father. John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen whom? The Father. The Father. Jesus is God incarnate. And if he was who he claimed to be, and if he was whom the scriptures declare him to be, then what implications does, do we draw from that? That he is the only way to God the Father. And Christianity is the only way to heaven. Now, there's so much more that could be said about this, 
Uh, let me just give you a couple more, then we better move on to our other questions or we'll never get them all answered this morning. Okay. Let me give you a couple other passages to look up. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That makes it pretty simple, right? If you receive the Son, if you receive Jesus Christ, you receive salvation. But if you reject the Son, God's wrath, <coughs> God's wrath against sin remains on you if you reject the Son. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father, Jesus said, but by me. Acts 4, 12, Peter said, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God incarnate. The Bible clearly teaches that salvation is in Him alone. Therefore, that has to be our message. No matter how uncomfortable it makes us, no matter what people may say about us, that has to be our message. Josh McDowell in Evidence That Demands a Verdict says this, Whom you decide Jesus Christ is, must not be an idle exercise. You cannot put him on the shelf as a great moral teacher. That's not a valid option. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. You must make a choice. And that's our message to the non-believers, the unbelievers around us. You must make a choice. But as the Apostle John wrote, McDowell went on, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and more important, that believing you might have life in His name. The evidence is clearly in favor of Jesus as Lord. However, some people reject the clear evidence because of the moral implications involved. There needs to be a moral honesty in the consideration of Jesus as either liar, lunatic, or Lord and God. Is it right to evangelize in a pluralistic world? We have to. We have to because the people around us have no other way to God and no other way to heaven. And all they face is a Christless eternity if you and I will not go and tell them about Christ, the one and only Savior. Well, we got one question answered. Let's try to answer a couple more. Um, what is the basis for going? Uh, the Holy Spirit set apart the best that the church had to offer in Antioch, the two ablest ministers. He took two-fifths of the leadership's team, leadership team at Antioch away. Isn't that interesting? Out of five leaders, teachers and prophets at the church of Antioch, he took five of them, he took out of those five, took two of them away, almost half of the leadership team at that church. And he not only did he take almost half of the leadership team, but he took the best. He took the best because they are what was necessary for this mission to take the gospel to the world. He took the best that that church had to offer. Well, 
We don't know how the Holy Spirit called upon them to release Paul and Barnabas to this work. We shared with you last week that uh, it was possibly, it was probably, excuse me, through his word, possibly through a sermon, uh, through the word of God, possibly through a sermon. Uh, we, we might hear from the Holy Spirit through a Christian book, through the words of a, of a, of a, a friend, a believer, uh, or through our own reading and study of the Scripture. If we looked at how they understood and how they were guided in the Old Testament, the guidance that we see in the Old Testament is the moral and ritual laws of the Pentateuch were uh, those that could guide the believers in that day. On top of that, the high priest had the Urim and the Thummim, which were the two stones that were in the breastplate of his ephod, and uh, through that Urim and the Thummim, he would, they would make decisions uh, about a direction to go or what to do. That was how the, old, the saints in the Old Testament were guided. In the New Testament, we have all throughout the Bible the general uh, uh, principles, particularly of the epistles. There are general principles throughout the the. Uh, uh, principles, excuse me, in throughout the epistles. Uh, there is also the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit to every believer. Now, the Holy Spirit's not going to speak to you or to me apart from the Word of God, but the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God in various settings to reach us, to guide us, to direct us if we are going to be sensitive and if we are yielding to the Holy Spirit. He will lead us in that way. Larry Richards said, when we have a difficult choice to make, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit and inspect him, expect Him to give us a sense of peace when we are moving in God's chosen way. Another scripture for you to write down to study this week, 1 Timothy 4, 1-4. 1 Timothy 4, 1-4, where Paul tells us, as far as making decisions, in this case it's about uh, uh, legalism, about people who tell you you should eat this or not eat this, uh, you should marry or not marry. He, Paul gave us some direction. He said to the believers in Ephesus that you have the Word of God, you have prayer, you have the Holy Spirit who lives within your life, they are sufficient to guide you to make a decision. And that's true for you and for me, every believer. Every believer has the Holy Spirit who lives within because the moment we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. Every believer has the Word of God available to them. And every believer has the Holy, the, the, uh, excuse me, the uh, privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer. That's how the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, leads us today. Well, <clears throat> let's quickly look at the other, two, the, the other questions. What, um, what are the characteristics of ascending church? Let me quickly give you five. There are five characteristics of ascending church. Number one, it's a church that is already busy doing the work of the gospel. It's a church that's already busy doing the work of the gospel. Number two, it's a teaching church. All of this comes out of chapters 11, 12, and 13 
of the book of Acts. It is a teaching church. Uh, thirdly, it is an instructed church. That is, people who are responding to the teaching of the Word of God. People who are aligning their lives around the Word of God. Number four, it's a giving church. Remember, the church of Antioch took up a collection to help the saints at Jerusalem. So it's a church that's already giving. Number five, it is a spiritual praying, worshiping church. It is a spiritual praying, worshiping church. To the question as, what is the reason for going? Uh, there are many reasons that, that people give uh, that somebody should go and take the gospel to another part, either of their world or the world. Uh, and sometimes they say, it's, they uh, use guilt to say that you should take the gospel, you should be in full-time ministry, you should be a missionary. Sometimes they use guilt. Sometimes there's uh, exhortation that everyone should be a missionary. Everyone should be a missionary. Um, the, the bottom line is, and we see this, and we'll continue to see it. We see it in Acts 13, 1 to 3. We'll continue to see it. The bottom line is this, that the only reason that someone should go into the ministry, the only reason that someone should become a missionary is because God the Holy Spirit has set them apart to it. Not because there's a need, not because somebody has given you an indiscriminate exhortation. Uh, I like what Oswald Chambers said, a missionary is someone sent by Jesus Christ just as he was sent by God. The great controlling factor is not the needs of the people, but the command of Jesus. The goal is to be true to him, to carry out his plans. Personal attachment to the Lord Jesus and to his perspective is the one thing that must not be overlooked. In missionary work, the great danger is that God's call will be replaced by the needs of the people to the point that human sympathy for those needs will absolutely overwhelm the meaning of being sent by Jesus. We tend to forget that the one great reason underneath all missionary work is not primarily the elevation of the people, their education, nor their needs, but is first and foremost the command of Jesus Christ Go there and make disciples of all nations. The reason to go into the ministry, the reason to become a missionary is because you are called by God to do that. Not because there's a need, but because you are called by God to do that. All right, let's ask, answer, I think it's the last question. I hope it is, because I really need to stop. Okay. Who is the person God calls to ministry? What are the characteristics of the kind of person God calls to ministry? Number one, they're already doing the ministry in their local church. They're already doing the ministry in their local church. Number two, they are gifted by God to be used in that way. Number three, they are called by the Holy Spirit. Number four, they are yielded to God. Number five, they are strong mentally and physically. And number six, they are confirmed by the church and the people who know them. Last thing. You say, well, why are you telling us about ascending church? Why are you telling us about the characteristics of a person whom God sent? sent because you may be somebody God's laid his hand upon. 
because they're already sitting in this auditorium, several people whom God laid their hands upon and they're in the ministry today because he called them. Several of our missionaries were sitting in these chairs or the chairs of the old building and they are in the ministry. They are in missions today because God set them apart and called them. Are you willing to say yes? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the examples of this church at Antioch. Now, Father, as we partake of this bread and cup, uh, we just uh, thank you that we can honor your son in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jason?